Genesis chapter 25. We're going to start reading at verse 21 in just a few minutes. Genesis 25 and 21. So we're going to continue our study today called Unleashing the Power of Family. And we've been dealing with a number of themes having to do with family life because God intended for family to be a, such a, a source of, of health and wholeness and well-being and joy and blessing to our lives. And because of sin uh, that got, you know, it, family got um, twisted up and backwards and messed over like everything else in this world uh, and so the, sometimes our experience in family is not, shall we say, as wonderful or pleasant as what the Lord would have intended for it to be. But Jesus died on the cross <laughs> and rose from the dead to overcome sin in all of its forms. To, he and his salvation is the cure for it all. And so family can be for us. Re recovered, restored, redeemed. And uh, that's why we're digging into this with hope, believing that God can change things. So we've talked already about a number of things, but today we come to the subject of type-specific parenting. And there's a very long subtitle to this message, How to Address and, ce and Celebrate It. It should, should say How to Address and Celebrate Nobody is to blame for that typo except me, so it's my fault. How to address and celebrate the differences between strong-willed and compliant children. Now, you may not have kids. Sue and I don't have any children at home anymore. Um, but whether you have uh, children that you're raising right now or whether your uh, parenting is in the rearview mirror... And can I just say you're never done parenting? I, I was hoping that wouldn't be the case, but it's turned out that you're never done parenting. And, uh, you know, if you're, like you're in the stage of life that Sue and I are in, we're now helping to, uh, without meddling, we're helping to steward some young lives again in our, in our, as, as our grandchildren are um, coming into this world. But even if you don't have kids or never want to have kids, uh, you know people who do. And God is always in, uh, not only um, speaking into our personal lives and circumstances, but he is also always in the process of, of building us up that we might be able to serve him in this world and in the lives of those that are in the circles of our influence. So, um, <clears throat> and then beyond all that, even if you don't have any kids, even if there's nobody you know that has kids, you once were one. And so these things I think that we're going to talk about today uh, have bearing on us all. Genesis chapter 25, verse 21. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. Isaac was the only son of Abraham and Sarah. You know the story, most of you, uh, so I won't go into it. His wife's name is Rebekah, and he's pleading to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, it says, not able to have children. So they, they as uh, many folks in our congregation, in our um, circles of our lives influence, know well the pain of not of wanting to have children and not being able to. That's where they were. And so uh, Isaac is pleading with the Lord on, on, on behalf of his wife. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children... Notice the word is plural. The children, because we're going to find out there are twins, struggled together within her. 
So there's like this tug of war. I've never been pregnant, so I can't even imagine what this feels like. But um, there's a, uh, and, and you may, well, anyway, never mind. I've never been pregnant uh, because I'm a man. Um, so anyway, just, I just on, wanted to go on the record with, with that. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, if everything's okay, why am I like this? And so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. <laughs> that would be interesting news to receive. <laughs> two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, and he was hairy like, or he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau, which means hairy. So welcome Harry into the world. Afterward, his brother came out, and, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. <laughs> Already he's trying to hitch a ride, and... Um, so his name was called Jacob, which means literally supplanter or conniver or cheater. He's the guy that's always trying to work the angles and to his advantage. Okay, that's what that's Jacob's name means. Isaac was 60 years old when she, bore, when she bore them, Rebecca bore them. So the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Take note of these of these descriptions. Okay, Esau, it says, um, was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. I asked you to take note of that because we're going to come back to it. Verse 28, and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. So, you know, Esau is a hunter, he's an outdoorsman, and there's something about all that that Jacob was particularly drawn to, and he invested, I'm sorry, Isaac was particularly drawn to and uh, invested his love in the one son, Esau. And then it says, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So already you can see that this is a setup for a really problematic family, a very dysfunctional situation. And if you go on and read the story, it plays out in a pretty miserable way. But that having been said, I want us to take a look at what this passage tells us about two different types of children. And uh, we're going to talk about both the, the things that people do, um, the mistakes that parents make with regard to this, but also what the Bible teaches us about how to do this better. Okay? With me so far? Help me here because I got a lot of feedback about the video that I was stepping out of frame. So if I drift over here too far, somebody signal me so I get back and kind of... <laughs> um, all right. So we're going to talk about the fact that, there, that children, every child is unique. Every child is unique. And uh, sometimes parents... Um, I mean, we, I guess we sort of intuitively know this, but when you have more than one child, you know, you kind of fight for economy of scale. You know, you want, you want to have everything sort of the same so that, um, that it's easier to, to handle the, the tribe. 
<laughs> but every child deserves and needs, and you're going to hear me say this again, your unique approach to their uniqueness. And that's why we're diving into this. There are many factors that have to do, uh, go into the shaping of the uniqueness of each individual, each child. And this is just a list of some of them, but I want you to get thinking about how this kind of plays out in your own life or your own home or your own situations. First of all, there's birth order, and that's a real deal. You know, I'm, uh, it's a big subject, and I won't go into it, but it, it, birth order has um, impact on the unique place that a child holds in the family and so a unique way that they begin to see the world and respond to it. There's also personality. If you've ever... Uh, held a little baby, newborn baby, it's not long before that, not long at all, before that child starts to demonstrate its own, his or her own personality, you know. And um, environment, you know, the, all of the different things that surround a, a person, the home, their neighborhood, uh, their ethnicity, their racial heritage, all of this environment that surrounds them helps to shape them in different ways uniquely. There's family dynamics. Every family is just a little bit different and that plays into the uniqueness of, of each child. And that's not even to begin to deal with the whole subject of spiritual gifts and how God has uniquely wired us and, and gifted us. So all of these things and probably much more than that go into the shaping of us as individuals and unique individuals and your children and the children of those people in the circle of your life's influence also are unique. Now there are two general categories um, that I'm going to be referring to today in terms of um, characteristics of children. And I realize that this is you know, really probably grossly unfair because generalities don't really work Nobody is a general. Everyone is a specific. And so, please pardon me with that, but I think if we're going to get anywhere in dealing with this subject, and I think it's an important one, we've got to have somewhere to start. So I'm going to carve this up because I think the Bible does. You'll see that in a minute. Into two very broad, admittedly very general categories of individuals, the strong-willed and the compliant. Strong-willed and compliant. I know those two um, uh, uh, descriptions do not fully cover it. But let's use that today as at least a way to approach this subject. So let's talk about the strong-willed. In, in what we just read, uh, Esau is the strong-willed. Jacob is the compliant. Esau is described as a, as a skillful hunter and of the field. And I want you to focus in on what those things mean in terms of this, this characteristic of being strong-willed. First, skillful hunter, capable. In our home, we had two girls and a boy. Our, first, our oldest children were girls. And um, our, our first child, Dayspring, was our strong-willed. Es uh, Esau. <laughs> Dayspring was her name. <clears throat> Our second child, uh, Shiloh, was our compliant. 
And uh, actually, a few years ago, some of you might remember, I, I got up on the, it wasn't here, but it was at our old building with both of my daughters, and we talked through a lot of this stuff, and it was kind of interesting to have the interplay of them live here responding to the things that I'm, I'm telling you. Um, but they did confirm this stuff in, in pretty, uh, pretty uh, profound ways. But anyway, skillful hunter, capable uh, you know, uh, is one of the ways that that reads out. Strong-willed people, they don't start from the position of, oh, I don't think I can do this. They always think, oh, I can do that. You know, they, they never hesitate to take on a challenge. They figure, I can, you know, no, there's, well, if he can do it, I can do it. If she can do it, I can do it. They're capable they're achievers. They like to get things done. They're not capable or not comfortable with things kind of half finished. When I, when I was interviewing my oldest daughter about this one time, she said, yeah, it just drives me crazy. If something needs to be done, I want it done now and I want it done completely. And if no one else is going to do it, I'm going to do it. They are competitive, meaning, you know, if you pose anything or anyone poses a challenge to them, that just kicks it into another gear. They're aggressive, meaning they don't, they don't flinch. They'll press through with all they have uh, to accomplish their goals. Now, none of the things I just mentioned, capable, achiever, competitive, or aggressive, are bad things. They're good things. They can go a little sideways if, you know if not uh, addressed and supported and celebrated and, and directed in the right way. But all of those things are good things. There's nothing wrong with that. A strong-willed child is not a bad thing. Have, being strong-willed is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. The other characteristic or quality that is described, that Esau is described with is of the field. Meaning he was, he was outgoing, and I don't just mean, you know, life of the party. I mean going out. You know, strong-willed children, they're the ones that the day you bring them home from the hospital, they want the keys to the car. <laughs> you know, they're the ones that are always looking for how to get, how to get out the front door. They're independent. They can do just fine without other people. It's not that they don't need other people, but they don't, they don't need other people, you know. And they're usually explorers, meaning, you know, um, they're trying, they want to try new things and they're not afraid to. That can get them into trouble, but it can also be a tremendous asset. They're not afraid. You know, a lot of us, uh, we, we, uh, we live in such a, a small place because we're afraid to step out. Strong-willed, they don't have that same set of problems. Those three things, outgoing, independent, and, and an explorer, there's nothing wrong with those things. They're good things. So I, this is just one um, small way of kind of characterizing uh, a strong-willed child. The compliant child is described here, Jacob is described here as being mild and intense. And I don't mean... You know, they're intense. I mean, they, you know, he lived in a tent. You know, that's what I mean. And let's talk about what that means. <laughs> uh, 
So Jacob, when it says that he was mild, I mean, it basically means there was no drama. Now, with, with our oldest, Dayspring, that could not have been said. There was lots of drama. And um, so, you know, if you have more than one child in your family, um, you most likely have at least one of each of these. And I think it's just the mercy of God that he, he will ho hopefully give you at least one compliant in there. But, um, <laughs> so no drama. Easygoing, approachable, diplomatic. Shiloh was always the one that was settling the disputes between her other siblings. She was the, the peacemaker. She, and compliant um, children are usually team players. Uh, that doesn't mean that they are not, that they're not, um, they're not necessarily, it's not that they don't want to achieve things. Don't, I'm tongue-tied there a little bit, but don't get me wrong. It's not that they're, you know, just wanting to let the world pass them by. When I was talking with my daughter Shiloh, my, you know, in her adulthood about all this, she said, yeah, you know, it's really true of me. I'm not, I'm not passive and just letting the world go by. I want to accomplish things, but I want to do it with other people. I want to do it as part of a team. Um, so she was always really big into team sports. And even in ministry, I, I watched as she always gathers people around her to form a team to accomplish something. Whether it was going to the mission field or creating some new ministry in her church or whatever. That's, that's part of the makeup of a, of a compliant child. All of those things are all good. Um, they can have, like... Anything, they can kind of get twisted and go sideways too and cause problems for a person. But at, you know, on the face of it, these things are all good. Whether you or your children are strong-willed or compliant, it's a blessing from God. I was teasing before when I said the mercy of God. Not really, but anyway, that, <laughs> you get what I'm saying. Because that brings us to the next thing. Every child should be parented uniquely. Every child should be parented uniquely. And some of the common mistakes that people make that we read about right here in these few verses in, in Genesis chapter 25 are that the uniqueness is not valued. You know, for whatever reason, sometimes it's easier to love the strong-willed or the compliant but if we're going to parent our children uniquely in respect of their type, we need to value the diversity, their uniqueness. Um, some of the ways that not valuing the diversity shows itself in, is by placing blame. You know, it gets, I, I understand it. I've been tempted in this way myself and probably more often than I want to admit engaged in it but where you you know it's like um, you want to say either to yourself or to your spouse what did you do that we ended up with this child you know like this why aren't you and so on there's placing of blame as though it, something is wrong another thing is that we can find ourselves insisting on conformity why can't you be like your sister? I mentioned earlier, it's kind of easier, the economy of scale of just making sure that there's one size fits all in the way that we parent, you know, is 
helpful to a parent, but not to the kid. They need to be valued and treasured for their uniqueness and parented on that basis. So valuing their diversity or not valuing their diversity is one of the common mistakes that parents make. Another common mistake is resorting to favoritism, which we see clearly lived out in the pages of Genesis chapter 25. And the way that ends up happening sometimes is that you, the parent, one or the other parent can relate to one or the other um, temperament types or characteristics better than the other. And beyond that, all of us have regret. All of us, there are things that we wish we had done differently or hadn't done. Come on, anybody. And the temptation is if you have a child that you can relate to better because they have the same kind of type or temperament or characteristics that you have of reliving your life through them. And that's always a huge, huge mistake. To, live by, to attempt to live vicariously through your child burdens them in ways that are indescribable and inappropriate. Well, that's what we saw here, though, with uh, Isaac and Esau. Another way that this kind of gets messed up in terms of the favoritism or resorting to favoritism is compensating. So if one parent is drawn to the other or to, to one of the children or more, uh, the other spouse, other parent can try to balance the scales and compensate for that by showing more favor or attention to the other child that seems to be being left out of the equation. Now you've got a real mess. You have what we have here in Genesis chapter 25 where Isaac loves Esau and Rebekah loves Jacob. So there's, a, there's other things we could definitely talk about, but those are some of the common mistakes that parents make in this issue of, of every child needing to be parented uniquely. But I want to finish up by talking about some of the guiding principles that will help us to do this better. And we can find those in Luke chapter 15. So would you turn there now? Luke is one of the uh, Gospels. It's the third book in the New Testament. Luke chapter 15. We're going to read a very familiar story there. Beginning at verse 11. Luke 15, 11. This is the story of the prodigal son, but it's really the story of two sons. It's the story of two sons. Just as what we read in Genesis 25 was the story of two sons, so Luke 15 is the story of two sons. In Genesis chapter 25, we have Isaac and Rebekah as the parents, and they, they don't handle the situation very well. In Luke chapter 15, we're going to hear a parable that Jesus tells about two sons. But in this story, it's clear God is intended to be understood to be the father. And things go much, much differently. Verse 11. Then he said, Jesus said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood before we go any further, please note that this was an incredibly, you know, in our culture we can't even relate to it, but it was so audacious for, for this son to come to his father while his father still lived and demand his inheritance. It, it was such a breach of etiquette, not only that, but just so inappropriate in every way. But, the father divides to both his sons 
his, uh, their, his livelihood or their inheritance. Verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal or riotous or foolish or party living. But when he had spent all, which was almost predictable that that was going to happen, when he spent all, there arose severe, a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want or in need. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. He's so desperate that he takes a job uh, feeding pigs, and he's so hungry he would have gladly uh, fed himself uh, with the pods that the swine ate, but no one was giving him anything. Then verse 17, when he came to himself... When his eyes were opened, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and, and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And then what follows is how the father in this story, which is clearly Jesus, meaning for us to understand the heavenly father, God, and how he treats us. The father restores this wayward son to full sonship. He's not going to be a servant in the household. He's fully restored as a son. Verse 28. But he, the other son now, was angry and would not go in. He wouldn't go into the party that the father had thrown for the wayward son. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat. In other words, you never threw me a party that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots... You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let's talk about how the Lord in this story deals with us as either strong-willed or compliant children and see if we can draw some, some instruction from that about how to do it as moms and dads ourselves. The strong-willed is the younger son who begins all this by demanding his inheritance and he runs off and wastes it all. The father of the wayward son let him go. You would imagine that this father knows what's going to happen. And yet, he lets him go. When it comes to strong-willed children, we need to make sure we give them age-appropriate freedom with intentional communication. Now, the younger son here is not five years old, okay? So we're talking about age-appropriate freedom. But when it comes to strong-willed children, if you hold on too tightly to them, you are, you're crushing something that God put in them and setting yourself up and them for problems 
that you don't even want to consider or think about. That doesn't mean we turn them loose to do whatever they want, but it means that we let the tether out in an appropriate way, that we're willing to give them some, sat, some slack, some room, even when we know they're going to make some dumb choices. With strong-willed children, you've got to get in the habit of just being ready to dust them off and kiss their bruises because that's who they are. You know, when I was talking to my oldest daughter about this in, in her adulthood, she said, yeah, she said, I, you know, that was so true for me. I always wanted to just, I wanted to distance myself from the confines of your authority. Now, I'm not saying that, please don't hear me wrong about this. I'm not saying that we don't exercise parental authority over them. Please don't do that. I'm not going to turn my two-year-old loose in the kitchen because she wants to be in there when the stove is on, Okay. But um, she said, so that, that was true of me, but one thing I wished that would, ha that, you would ha that would have been more a part of our relationship was better communication about what was going on with me as you were letting that tether out. So I could have, you know, uh, understood more of what I was dealing with and facing. Ah, that's, you know, that's hindsight from, um, from her perspective and... You know, uh, I think we did a better job of that than she, she's willing to acknowledge. But that's, none, nonetheless, it's important to take note of as we're letting the tether out to make sure we're not cutting off the communication, you know, that we stay in touch with them. Then it says that, or when it talks about how the Lord handles the younger son, he not only lets him go, but he's letting him learn these lessons for himself. Strong-willed children, you know, sadly, but it is what it is. They pretty much have to learn everything the hard way. That doesn't mean it's, it isn't important for us to give them good instruction and good godly counsel and be a good parent, be in the game. But the, the truth is they're not going to listen to you as much as they're going to listen to the bumps and bruises they pick up along the way. They're going to learn everything them, you know, uh, for themselves the hard way. And God lets that happen, but not without, um, without love. It says that when he was a, a long way off, and you can imagine, it doesn't say so, but if God, in this story, it is God. If God is always watching for that moment when we turn to head home, that means he's always watching. There was never a moment when the father in this story was disconnected from, from the process. Always had his eye on him. So we have to, with the strong will, we have to sort of love them from a, from a distance. They're not the ones who get real excited when you come and smother them with a hug. They're the ones that kind of, you know, stiffen up, right? Uh, and, and that's okay. It's really, it's, it's okay. It's not a problem. It's not something wrong with them. It doesn't mean you shouldn't smother them with a hug, but it means that you have to kind of respect that they need a little bit of, of space. You, know, you love them from a bit of a distance. When it comes to the compliant, they want to be invited to be close. I remember um, very clearly one I don't really know why it stuck with me but I remember one time I have this vivid memory of me packing up the van with all this garbage and junk I had to take to the dump and I was already disgusted with it you know I'm dirty sweaty 
And I'm already disgusted with the whole process, and I'm no, I know I'm going to the dump, which is equally pleasant, right? And, uh, and my, my uh, middle daughter, Shiloh, she says, oh, daddy, daddy, can I come? I was like, really? But she just loved to be with us. And uh, so having, having it be something that she doesn't have to wonder if it's okay about is a good thing. That she knows that there's a, that there's a standing invitation. We want you to be close. What does the father in this story say to the son that's having this problem at the party? He says, you are always with me. I want you with me. Extending that invitation to them, inviting them to be close. And frequently reassure them of your love. They need to be, you know, it's funny because the compliant, they won't, they won't make any noise about this. They won't let you know because there's, they're no drama people. They won't let you know that they started to wonder if you love them as much as the other one who you have to give so much time and attention to because they're strong-willed. They won't let you know that. So you have to just kind of get in the habit of reassuring and reconnecting with the compliant child to make sure that they, that they know that you love them and are as committed to them and as concerned for them as you know, the one that takes up so much of your time because of the drama. And that goes to the last thing I'll say, which I know there's tons more to talk about on this subject, but this is what it is. The last thing is that when you're dealing with a compliant child, you have to find some way of explaining the apparent unfairness. Because your strong will will demand your time, your energy, your, most, your emotions. And you won't, if you're not careful, you won't have much left for the compliant one because they're going to still be there. When you turn around, they're still there. They're still happy, you know, not causing you any trouble. And so it's like, whew, I don't have to work at parenting you. But yes, you do. And when you find yourself in that bit of a tug of war, you have to find some way to explain it, helping them. And I don't mean, you know... Honey, the reason I don't have anything left for you is because of that bratty sister that you have over there that I have to, you know, I, I don't mean that. I mean, but you can't leave it unstated either. You can't leave it ambiguous because they won't know. They won't understand. So you have to find some way of reassuring them that you love them as much and go out of your way to give them the time that they're not demanding but love and need just as much. So I hope that makes some sense to you. And I'm going to wrap things up right there. I think that as parents and as people who uh, are making our way through a world where um, children are, are not being, frankly, parented very well, that the Bible speaks to a really important issue here with regard to being careful that we celebrate and address this foundational difference in the characteristics of our children. This is recording number 11094 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, March 9, 2014. This is the fourth message in a series titled, Unleashing the Power of Family. This message by Randy Bolt is titled, Type-Specific Parenting. How to Address and Celebrate the Differences Between Strong-Willed and Compliant Children.